Welcome to A Year with Jesus as we spend some time through the Gospel of Matthew learning how to think, live, and love like Jesus. I'm Bill. I'm Philip. And this is Matthew chapter 12. And 13. We got a lot to cover today. I love that so much. Yeah. All right, here we go. So in chapter 12, we see that Jesus starts getting opposed. He has preached some amazing lessons. They've healed lots of people, but the Pharisees are really increasing their opposition. Yeah, and, and as the opposition comes, we see sometimes it comes over nothing. When people want to oppose, they're going to oppose. That is so good. The first part of the chapter, the disciples, they're just kind of walking around. They're hungry, and they're picking grains. Uh, and, and so, Philip, I mean, what would have been the big deal with them walking around picking grains? Well, the Pharisees, of course, have a skewed view of what it means not to work on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And as they begin to very harshly criticize Jesus' apostles here, Jesus has to stop and take this as a teaching moment. And I think his big idea is that they are just judging way too quickly. And not only are they judging way too quickly, they're doing it without the proper understanding and without the proper mercy. Mm -hmm. And he gives a couple examples here to push back and say, you know, in this situation— don't a lot of people show mercy in this situation? Don't you have some comprehension? And so he drives home that the Pharisees are being unfair mm -hmm. in their criticism. Absolutely. And they, they give this example with David and 1 Samuel, uh, where, again, where what David did was actually unlawful, but he, they show mercy to David because they like David. Right, right. And with Jesus, they're a little more predisposed to not like him. And so there's less mercy. And maybe that's a good thing for us to think about. Yes, how uh, we're how we're judging, how we're looking at others. Yeah. And it goes all the way back to Matthew 7 about are you looking to be helpful or are you looking to be hurtful? And then he wants them to slow down and understand that sometimes acts of service might appear to be work, but they were not a violation of the law. And mm -hmm. he uses the priest as that example. And so, you know, sometimes people come to this part of Matthew 12 and they say, oh, what Jesus is actually doing is saying that Showing compassion is more important than keeping the commandments of God. That's not the solution yeah, not or at answer all. at all. Jesus never actually spoke or taught that way. What he's doing is correcting the Pharisees' harsh attitudes, mm -hmm. correcting their misunderstanding, and showing that what the apostles are doing is much has much more in common with what the priests were doing mm -hmm. on the Sabbath day. Yeah, because, again, them picking the grains would have actually been lawful. They could eat on the Sabbath. They just couldn't work. But the Pharisees would have created this extra hedge around the law of God. And really, as the text continues, Jesus will even show them just how ridiculous that mindset kind of goes. He says, you know, so there's a guy, there's a guy and they're in the synagogue, a guy has a withered hand and Jesus stretches out his hand to, to, to heal the man. And, and the, you can tell the Pharisees, they're upset. They were actually, oh. they were waiting to see, you know, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And then he says, okay, well, what makes more sense? If, if your sheep was caught, what would, like the Pharisees would have said, it's okay to save your sheep. And he says, but it's not okay to help a person out here. That's right. Jesus is showing just how broken their perspective is that not only are they condemning the innocent, but they're completely misjudging mm -hmm. the grace of God to heal on the Sabbath. And so he immediately heals this man, but the Pharisees want to destroy him. Again, they're, they're being outsmarted. They feel stupid. No one like, you know, no one likes to feel that way. But I mean, if, if you're opposing Jesus, 
You're going to feel pretty stupid. This is going to happen. Because think of his character. He's the one that doesn't put out the smoldering wick. He's the one that doesn't break off the, the battered reed. It's this idea that someone who is just holding on in a stressful time of their life, in, in the difficulties of hunger or the difficulties of some physical handicap, Jesus doesn't go to that person and snuff them out. Mm-hmm. Jesus comes to that person and says, I can help you through this. I can bring you to the other side of this. And so we see the tremendous mercy and the tremendous helpfulness of Jesus here. And it's such a strong contrast. I I think you're supposed to see the connection from the end of chapter 11, where he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Imagine trying to live under the Pharisaic rules and principles. It would be so burdensome. And again, I also think Jesus would have spoken with, I mean, spoke as one who had authority and not like the scribes. And so again, you see this jealousy on there and you see this power struggle and Jesus knows that they're trying to kill him, and so he he leaves. Very good. So after we see this interaction on the Sabbath, we get another scene where the Pharisees are critical not just of what he's doing on this day of rest, but they're critical of the very power by which he performs these miracles. And we have this famous quote, which of course Abraham Lincoln used, right? That a house divided against itself will not stand. But what are they saying about Jesus and his power to heal? Yeah, so they clearly don't have anything to say about his ability to teach and clearly about the fact that he can heal. So the only thing they're going to try to do now is really assassinate his character. So what they're saying is, well, the only reason he can do this is because Satan's working through him. Like that's that's the only way that he could do these things. And Jesus, again, in showing and, and their stupidity, he's, he's that it doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of what leads to that quote. How, if Satan casts out Satan, then he's divided against himself and the house will not stand. And so, again, I think that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to cut down his character. But I love what he says in verse 29. He says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? It makes me think in so many ways that this is what Jesus came to do. Satan has been a strong man and he or the Pharisees have been strong people that they've taken people captive. But Jesus is both showing his strength and we are the plunder of Jesus as he's bringing us out of these homes. I just, I love that picture there. And I love that scene. It's tremendous. And I think there's an application for us today in showing great respect to the Spirit-inspired and confirmed Word of God. Amen. Amen. Right? That, that what we're reading in the Scriptures that gives us this picture of Jesus so that we can walk in His footsteps, this is not just eyewitness testimony. This is eyewitness testimony that has been inspired, mm-hmm. and this is eyewitness testimony that has been confirmed with powerful, powerful miracles that no one could do on their own accord. Well, it just requires divine help, right? Amen. Amen. Which then leads to, I believe... A big misunderstood passage where people talk about the unpardonable sin, you know, and, 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 and so and Jesus says to them, any sin or blasphemy shall be forgiven, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. Philip, why do you think he says that? What, what is this? This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Right. This is a rejection of what the spirit has done to confirm the identity of Christ. Mm-hmm. And when we look at all that we have as evidence today to confirm the identity of Christ and what the spirit has done to communicate that to us from the mind of God to the heart of man, not only to communicate the truth of it, but to communicate it in such a gracious and loving way. If we turn our back, on that level of gracious, loving, perfect, divine communication, we have no opportunity for forgiveness. And because what else would there be? 
right? How else could God forgive you if not through his son? And so then the chapter moves into thinking of our speech. If the spirit has given a message like this and confirmed what Jesus has taught, what about our speech, right? I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. This is one of those famous quotes from the book of Matthew that makes us pause, Mm -hmm. makes us come back and say, I want to choose my words carefully in all of my relationships. I want to choose my words carefully in all my preaching and teaching. Yeah, and again, you see the good fruit of Jesus because you see his character. And really, I think he's even calling out the Pharisees. You see their rottenness. You see how they're talking. They're unwilling to repent. They're, They're blaspheming against the Spirit. And so again, you see the rottenness that's within them. And again, for us, you don't have to tell you, you don't have to tell people what tree you are They'll hear it in your words. They'll hear it in your conversations. They'll speak, and it'll be, you'll be able to see if you're a good, good, good tree or bad tree. That's right. So the end of the chapter just really comes back to this decision-breaking point, right? It comes back to this idea that who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. The Pharisees have removed themselves mm-hmm. from the family of God because they condemn the innocent because they reject the spirit and because they keep begging for a sign, even though many signs have already been performed. And they've had the law, all they've had the sign, they've had the prophets, they've had Jesus, I think even mentioning Jonah earlier, all these things are pointing towards me, but you do not want to believe, which I actually think then leads to what happens later on. It says later on that day in chapter 13, verse one, he begins this discourse where he talks about these four fields. Yes, we get description in chapter 13 of the kingdom. And we get story after story, parable after parable to help us understand what the kingdom is really like. And each of these parables are given, again, so that you can make a choice. Will I pay attention? Will I seek out the the real meaning of Mm -hmm. these parables? Or like the Pharisees, am I going to reject him? Yeah, there seems to be like five little mini sermons and they in, in this section, really from 1 to 23. And he finishes almost every one of them the exact same way. And, and he who has an ear and understands, let him hear. Which, again, the Pharisees had ears. They just chose to not understand. And that's the challenge for us. Okay, so everybody loves this chapter. Everybody loves to see the parable of the sower and the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven. And like my favorite is the treasure and the pearls. So when you look at just the parable of the sower, mm-hmm. Bill, what should we be taking away from this parable? Uh, so... Uh, the, <laughs> The what? It's like what? So many. I know. I know. I made up a word there. What's? But no. But but uh, the the seed is not the issue. The sower is not the issue. It's the soil. It's the hearts of people. It is. And, I, and I, there's a lesson that I think about often when I when I read this section, because I read this text and I'm like, well, I've been the thorny ground. I've definitely been the wayside. I've been the thorny ground. I've been the rocky ground. You know, and and. I think his point isn't if you are a soil, that's the soil you are always going to be. Yeah. You may be listening to this thinking, I've got some thorns in my life. Am I destined to always be thorny? And I, I just think it's like, no. I think you read this and he says, this is what happens if you choose to be this sort of soil. And you have to let the word of God penetrate and you have to tend to that soil. I think in my own life of times where I felt like I am the rocky soil, where I know that I've got to make my roots go deeper. I've got Mm -hmm. to remove these obstacles here so that I don't just jump up, you know, do something enthusiastic, you know, all looks good temporarily, Mm -hmm. but then it withers away and produces no fruit. 
I think in this parable, when we tend to the heart, when we tend to the soil, it allows us to be fruitful. So I love that uh, emphasis on the heart. Which which then means if you're good soil, you have to keep taking care of that soil. You can't just say, well, I'm good soil, so I'm fine. But Philip, I know, again, so many lessons here. What stands out to you in the text? Well, I think that as he's introducing us to this concept of soil, and he comes now to the parable of the tares and the wheat, that there's a great, great lesson for us to answer the question of suffering. Mm-hmm. Where does the suffering come from? Where does all of this evil come from? It's the enemy. Yeah. When we blame God or we question whether or not he has put good seed into good soil, we've totally missed the role of Satan. And so as Jesus begins teaching the parable of the tares and even explaining the parable of the tares, we understand that God looks out at the world and has allowed the tares to continue because he cares about the roots mm. and the fruitfulness of the seed that he's sowing. He cares about you and me. Amen. He cares about disciples of Jesus Christ. And yes, he could uproot all those tares, but we would suffer in the process. Mm-hmm. And so it's an act of his mercy and of his divine wisdom to allow us to grow up side by side. Yeah. And, and that growth, I think about the parable of the mustard seed, that growth starts small. And it's a progressive growth. It's not like you woke up one day and it's like, boom, I'm a Christian. I'm great now. And all of this takes so much time. The people that we look up to, the people that we respect, at some point, they were young Christians who were growing and figuring things out. And again, I, th- I think in all of this, it, you know, not and not everybody comes to the kingdom in the same way, which goes to the oh, treasures yes. idea there. Yes. Well, when you get to the treasures at the end of chapter 13, you have just three little verses comparing the kingdom of God to treasure hidden in a field and to a very fine pearl. And my favorite concept here is that this is life-changing joy. Mm. You think about your wedding day, that was life-changing joy. Here you're going to commit yourself and covenant yourself to spend the rest of your life with this person that you treasure. And you think about your children being born. There is life-changing joy Mm -hmm. in those days. And understanding the true value of Jesus' kingdom produces so much joy that no matter what you have to sacrifice, you pursue it. And once you see it, you don't want any substitutes. This man who sees this great and valuable pearl, he is never going back to less valuable pearls, right? But doesn't Satan want to tempt us to go back to less valuable? Absolutely. Even even the guy who finds this, you know, this treasure in the hidden field, he hides it. You know, he's he's almost afraid because he doesn't want to lose it. And we see uh, just the, the, the desire that he has to want to keep all of this. So in spite of all of this, all of I me, mean, this great joy, this great pearl, some people still will not listen. Jesus goes home. He goes to his hometown. Yep. And he's teaching in the synagogue. And they're astonished. They, they hear the wisdom. They see the miraculous powers. And in verse 55, they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? All, everything we've talked about, just this great treasure, great pearl, Jesus' phenomenal teaching. And they take offense with him. Yeah, they can't wrap their heads around this guy that they're so familiar with actually being the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And it's a reminder for us not to get overly familiar with the story and the life of Christ to forget what his intent is. He's here to seek and save the lost. He's here to redeem us from sin. He's here with a message that impacts us for eternity. Amen. Amen. 
So, Philip, what, what are some things as we look at chapters 12 and 13, what's kind of a big takeaway that you think personally we need to see this in the text, that I personally need to see this in the text? Well, this is, again, one of those sections of Matthew where a decision is called for. Mm-hmm. Am I going to be more like the Pharisees who look at the disciples, who look at what the Spirit has done, who look at the very works of Jesus, and I only view it critically? Mm-hmm. I only come to this looking for excuses to push him away. Or am I going to be like the ones that listened to the parable and take in the word of God so that it can change me, so that it can make my life more fruitful? I think we just have to decide which group we're going to fall into. Amen. Amen. Well, what about on a collective level, on a group level? How does this affect our friendships? How does this affect our coworkers? How does this affect our families? It changes how you view all of that. And it changes what all of that actually is. I'll, I'll say a quick 30 second story. And I, I don't think well, this one sister who said this would mind, but I remember years ago, I, I became a Christian and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, so I'm trying to not spend the holidays with my family because it was a big kind of ruckus party. And so uh, I would go and spend it with different Christians in different places and travel. And at one point, one of my sisters says to me, you know, she's like, well, I know you won't be here for Thanksgiving because you'll be with your real family. And like at the time it was a little offensive, but in hindsight, she was right. And even recently we talked about it and she knows she understands it now. Right. Because that's what Jesus says. Behold, when they're, when they're seeking him at the end of chapter 12 and they say, your mother's looking for you, your brothers are outside standing for you. He says, who is my brother and who are my brothers? And he says, the ones who do the will of my father, because the connection with the father is what connects all of us to with one another. And it changes. It redefines all of our relationships. And I personally thank God for that. That is fantastic. And to know that we have those bonds in the family of Christ, Mm -hmm. it's something that lets us continue to work together. It's something that lets us continue to walk in the footsteps of our Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to A Year with Jesus. Next week, we'll be in Matthew chapter 14. If you want any more information on our podcast or the reading plan, you can visit embryhills.com slash podcast.